theme of this symposium is Scripture in the Church, Formative or Formality. Formative or Formality. And if I were forced to choose between these two either-or alternatives, I would have to say that from my perspective, many, if not most, CTCR documents tend to approach Scripture and interact with Scripture more as a formality than as a formative tool for unpacking or developing or explicating a particular theological issue on the basis of specific scriptural texts. So there you have it. The emperor is naked, uh, but at least he has a CTCR document to cover his nakedness. You know? <laughs> I would, and this was Robbie's document on eschatology, by the way. There's a pun there somewhere. Don't think too deeply about it. I would also like to submit for your consideration, however, that formality is not always or necessarily a bad thing, despite the fact that it has some justifiably negative connotations. I would even go so far as to argue that mere formality is not always a bad thing. Think about it, we teach our children all kinds of mere formalities. Like the fork goes on the left side of the plate, which makes no sense at all, unless you're left-handed. I don't know, maybe this is one of society's rare sops to southpaws. I don't, I don't get it, it's a formality. Now, of course, I would never advocate or defend treating scripture as a mere formality, however, as Dr. Bartelt mentioned in his opening comments this morning, most of us were taught to think and speak of Scripture as the what principle? The formal principle in Lutheran theology. And that means, among other things, that we as confessional Lutherans, every time we approach Scripture, we approach it with some pretty big assumptions. This goes to Seleska's presentation this morning. Foremost among those assumptions is that Scripture alone is the final source and norm for everything we believe and teach and practice in the church. And let me now zero in on that word norm, because if I could reframe this topic for my own purposes, I think I would use the terms, rather than formative and formality, formative and normative. Formative and normative. And I will freely acknowledge that for better or for worse, many, if not most, CTCR documents approach Scripture more as a normative source or standard of theological truth than as a formative tool or instrument for the theological explication of those truths. And sometimes, in my opinion, that's actually okay. Sometimes, maybe it's even a, a good thing. Sometimes it's a weakness, and sometimes it's a serious weakness, and I'm not sure it's ever a simple either-or, because even when you work with something as normative, it flows into formative in one way or another. In any event, I'm really glad that we're talking about it. And I want to thank the planning committee and the seminary for giving us a chance to talk about it. And I think we need to talk about it a lot more than we do and that we have in the past. Now, before I try to unpack this normative, formative duality or tension a little more specifically, let me very quickly, very briefly,
try to clear up what I believe are three rather common misconceptions about the CTCR and what it is and what it does. And I'll do this by the way of three assertions. First of all, uh, there is no such thing as the CTCR. Uh, the CTCR is a figment of your imagination. It's like the league of red-headed men that stumped even the great Sherlock for a while. Lots of people have heard about it. Very few people have ever seen it, and those people, we're not sure they can be trusted. Uh, Jeff Gibbs likes to talk about the significance of emphasis, so let me say it this way. There is no such thing as the CTCR. Since 1962, when the commission was created by the Synod, there have been at least 20 different CTCRs of differing sizes and constituencies and members and opinions and types and levels of expertise, so I think it's just good to keep that in mind. Nobody who was on the original CTCR is still alive. And a lot of water has gone over the theological dam between 1962 and 2010. Talking about the CTCR is kind of like talking about the seminary faculty. Who exactly are you talking about? What faculty, when, and in what context? Assertion number two, there is no such thing as a typical CTCR document. Since 1962, the Commission has produced over 100 formal documents on a wide variety of issues, and the way that it uses Scripture in a given document depends to a large extent, obviously, on what the topic is, who the intended audience is, who the primary drafter is, is the document going to be two pages or 200 pages, and what exactly was the assignment we got from the Synod. Did they want an exegetical study, a historical survey, a systematic treatment, a Bible study, or some combination of those elements? It's a rather complex issue. There is no kind of a template for producing a CTCR document or for using scripture in a CTCR document. You can find some commonalities in certain groups of documents, maybe because of a common drafter or a common topic or the nature of the assignment or whatever, but in a very real sense, every CTCR document is, is unique and has to be judged on the basis of its own merits or lack of them in this and other areas. And finally, assertion number three, and I'm not sure this rates, relates real specifically to the topic here today, but every chance I have to stand in front of a microphone, I like to say it, and that is that the CTCR does not, does not determine the doctrinal position of the Synod on any issue. In our polity, only the Synod in convention has that authority. Most people are surprised to learn that in the history of the Synod, only one CTCR report has been formally adopted by the Synod in convention, and I would contend that that was before the Synod actually knew what it was doing. Uh, just three years after the CTCR was created, in 1965, the convention adopted the CTCR's 1965 report, Theology of Fellowship, one of its first documents ever, and it never made that mistake again, the convention. Many CTCR reports have been commended by the Senate over the years for study or discussion or reference or guidance, but never adopted as such by the Senate since then. And there are times when certain conclusions of CTCR reports work their way into synodical resolution. Yeah, that happens. But the CTCR does not determine the doctrinal position of the Synod, and in my opinion, that is a very, very, very good thing. 
That means that people are free, free to discuss, debate, critique CTCR documents and make use of them for what they're intended to be used for, to encourage and stimulate honest, healthy, fraternal dialogue and discussion in the Synod on these theological issues. It hurts the Commission and it hurts the Synod when they are given a status that they don't have and that they don't deserve. So back to my thesis. CTCR reports tend to use and approach scripture more in a normative than a formative way. What do I mean by that? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, keeping a very close eye on my watch, uh, let me share a, just a few thoughts for your consideration and critical evaluation. First of all, I think it's important to keep in mind that the CTCR is not just any CTCR, it is the official theological commission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. To use Seleska's terms or imagery, that's our family. That's our community. And therefore, the commission operates under and is governed by, you could say, the theological presuppositions set forth in Article 2 of the Synod's Constitution, namely, quote, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the written word of God and the only rule and norm of faith and practice, and all the symbolical books of the Evangelical Lutheran Church are a true and unadulterated statement and exposition of the Word of God. Now, this may seem like a, like a pretty obvious point, but the CTCR does not tackle its assignments from the Synod with sort of a tabula rasa attitude or approach to the Scriptures. It approaches Scriptures on the basis of the assumption that we already have a fairly extensive and specific and authoritative theological grid through which to read and view and understand and apply the scriptures, namely the Lutheran confessions. But we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we address some issue that is challenging the church, especially when that issue is essentially a contemporary outgrowth of an issue that has already been addressed, addressed clearly and authoritatively in the Lutheran confessions. And so... For example, the CTCR is asked to address the issue of justification or the doctrine of the ministry or the Lord's Supper. It does not begin these assignments with the assumption that we have no idea what the Bible says about these topics. It does not begin by saying, well, well you know, what should we do? Let's go back to the Bible and see if the Lutheran confessors were right when they said that we are saved by grace alone or that the body and blood of Christ are truly present in the Lord's Supper. Now, please understand, I am not saying that it would be illegitimate to do that. In fact, I think we ought to do that more often than we do, and we should have the confidence to do it precisely because of our quia subscription to the Lutheran Confession. But I'm just saying... That is not the way the CTCR typically approaches its assignments from the Senate. CTCR documents on topics like justification or the ministry or the Lord's Supper do often contain a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches on these topics and some attempt to explain why we believe what we believe, but rarely do they seek to provide an exhaustive, in-depth, creative exegetical examination or even defense of these doctrines. Typically, these documents are prepared for the purpose of offering a relatively short, simple, 
readable, accessible review of what Lutherans believe Scripture and the Confessions teach about this topic, and then to address some practical or ecclesial issues that are under current debate or discussion in the Synod. Obviously, we don't have, have time to get into all the intricacies of the relationship between Scripture and the Confessions here, Scripture as the norming norm, Confessions as the norm norm, and so on. But one of the resources that I have found personally helpful in this regard is Walther's, C.F.W. Walther's fairly well-known essay to the first convention of the Iowa district, which is called Duties of an Evangelical Lutheran Synod. In that essay, Walther unpacks and develops six essential duties of an Evangelical Lutheran Synod. And he begins by saying this, the primary duty incumbent on a synod that wants rightly to be considered an evangelical Lutheran synod is to be faithful to what? Scripture, right? Wrong. The Lutheran confessions. Now, Walther anticipates the objection. He says, someone might very well be wondering why we did not list as the primary duty of a synod that that uh, wants to be an evangelical Lutheran synod, faithfulness to God's word above all things. But he says we need to remember, by virtue of the fact that a synod confesses God's word, it indicates that it intends to be a Christian synod. But if it wants to indicate that it is a Lutheran synod, it must indicate that the confession of the Lutheran church is its confession. And in that case, he says, of course, it will also wholeheartedly confess God's word. For you see, our confession demands above all else a wholehearted confession of God's word. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? According to Walther, there is a kind of circular relationship between the scriptures and the confessions. Scripture teaches us what we confess in the confessions, and the confessions continually drive us back to the scriptures as the source of that belief and confession. One of the reasons I think that this symposium topic is so very important is because, as many of the speakers have pointed out, in today's world and in today's church and even in today's synod, it is increasingly difficult and even dangerous to make assumptions about almost anything. It's very difficult today to make any assumptions at all about what our own members believe about this or that or the other thing, or why they believe it or don't believe it, and what they think or believe about what the synod thinks or believe, and what Scripture has to do with all of this is, a, is another question entirely. And so, if CTCR documents in the past have generally operated under the assumption that a summary of the Lutheran position with a few passages from Scripture and the confessions in parentheses at the end of the paragraph, will be compelling and persuasive to anybody, our own members, somebody outside the church or the synod, then we need to think again. That certainly doesn't mean setting aside our conviction that the Lutheran confessions rightly interpret Scripture, but it does mean we need to work a lot, lot, lot harder than we did in the past to explain why we believe that a particular confessional teaching is correct and why it is vitally important to the life and mission and ministry of the church. Well, let me give you a quick example. 
I think one of the best documents, one of the best recent documents produced by the commission, and I say that not just because I see him sitting out there, but is the document that was authored primarily by Jeff Gibbs on admission to the Lord's Supper, a 1999 document. The document begins, as do any number of CTCRs report, with a, with a section on scripture, which is, I think, just so very well done. And then it has a section on the Lutheran confessions, which unpack what the confessions say about admission of the Lord's Supper, and then it deals with any number of practical issues that were debated at that time and still debated. Fantastic document. Thank you, Jeff. But I will tell you a secret as an insider, as a CTCR staff person. This document has not answered everyone's questions <laughs> about this topic. <laughs> well, and maybe I'll follow up by saying it may have raised more questions even than it's answered. And one of the problems with this document, if I can put it this way, because I think it's one of the best documents we've ever done, but one of the problems is that it, that it does assume certain things that apparently in today's world and church you just can't assume anymore about the authority of Scripture, about the authority interpretation of the Lutheran confessions, about you know, what, who Paul is and, and what he taught and how that all relates to it. It, it makes some big assumptions. And part of the reason we do that is because otherwise you'd end up with a 300-page book, not a CTCR document, and we do like it if people will actually read these documents. And so some of the argumentation has to be a little concise. So believe it or not, seven years after this wonderful document was released to the church by the CTCR, the Synod met together in convention in the year 2007 and said to the CTCR, you know, with all due respect, we could really use some helpful resources explaining what the Bible and the Lutheran confessions teach about admission to the Lord's Supper. <laughs> now, was that a criticism of this document? I don't think so. It was just yet another wake-up call that we're living in a different world, and we need to keep trying harder and harder and harder to explain why we believe what we do, what we, why we practice the way we do. Now, at the risk of, of totally freaking out the, the exegetes in this room, I could narrow the circle even further and say this. Every individual and corporate member of the Synod has pledged to honor and uphold not only the Lutheran confessions, but also the doctrinal position of the Synod as set forth in hundreds of doctrinal resolutions adopted since the year 1847. We used to get the question, well, what are they? And now we can answer because CHI has a wonderful CD that has all the doctrinal resolutions of the Synod from the year 1847 to 2004, and the rest you can find online. So you have no excuse for not knowing <laughs> what you have pledged to honor and uphold. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Now, if that's true for official members of the Synod, individuals and congregations. It's certainly true for official commissions of the Synod. And so I think it's fair and accurate to say that the CTCR operates under the assumption, generally, that not only are the confessions correct and in accordance with what the scriptures teach, so has everything the Synod in its wisdom has ever said. I'm overstating that just a little bit. But you get the point. And believe it or not, generally speaking, I also think that's a good thing. 
I believe that for the most part, CTCR documents have had a kind of calming, reassuring, stabilizing effect on the Synod that is generally helpful and positive even when the document may be dry as dust. In fact, maybe especially when the document is dry as dust. And if you really stop to think about it, I don't think any of us really want a renegade, wild-eyed theological commission that goes around questioning everything the Synod has ever said it believes. We would much rather have renegade and wild-eyed seminary professors doing that. <laughs> now, that's not to say that there is not a time and place for questioning, even challenging the position of the Synod on a given issue. And actually, the CTCR has done that in some significant ways over the years. In 1968, for example, the commission issued a document authored primarily by Dr. Martin Charlemagne on women's suffrage that took a rather fresh look at some of the pertinent passages of scripture and concluded that contrary to the synod's historic position and practice, there was nothing in the scriptures that prohibited women from voting in congregational and synodical assemblies. In 1969, the next year, the Synod met in convention and adopted this as its own position. And what happened? All hell broke loose, right? Well, not exactly, but even today, 40 years later, this is still, as you know, a very live issue for some in the Synod. In 1973, the CTCR issued a report called The Ministry and Its Relationship to the Christian Church, in which it took a fresh look at pertinent passages in this area, and concluded that contrary to the Synod's historic practice, male teachers in the Synod should not only be called, but also ordained. That was the recommendation of the Commission. This time, the Synod did not follow the lead of the CTCR, and that issue just sort of faded away, although it has come back to the surface in recent years in the context of questions about an ordained diaconate and so on. I could give many, many, many more examples of CTCR reports that have examined or re-examined a particular issue on the basis of Scripture in the Confessions and reached conclusions that either affirmed or, in some cases, questioned the Synod's position, and which the Synod itself has either accepted or rejected or, in some cases, ignored. <laughs> I could also give many examples of reports in which the CTCR has done a less impressive and thorough job of examining and unpacking the scriptural evidence for a particular position. But since uh, the vast majority of our reports have been authored by seminary professors, I don't want to step on too many toes here. Uh, Paul Robbie will put me in my place here. He will tell you that when the commission gets done raping and pillaging a professor's uh, pristine draft, the professor wants absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, <laughs> That's why we don't put names on our reports, it's to protect the drafter. <laughs> one, I'm almost done here, but one criticism I sometimes hear of some CTCR reports uh, from people like Cloa, for example, is this use of sort of scriptural principles, which can sometimes become an excuse for doing an end around real exegesis of particular passages of scripture. It's not really what the Bible says, it's what I say it says in this tidy little principle backed up by a couple of passages in parentheses, and just don't look them up, trust me. You know, they do defend the principle. <laughs> That's sort of like Joel's comments on the catechism, right? Yeah. Now, I think this is a very valid concern. I really do. Um, I don't think it means, I don't think Jeff would say it means, that 
there isn't a place for using scriptural principles, especially maybe when it comes to things like moral and ethical issues that are not often addressed explicitly in the scriptures. For example, when the CTCR gets an assignment on cloning, you know, where exactly do you go in the Bible for a good discussion of fertilizing an egg without the benefit of sperm? You know, maybe the virgin birth, but I'm not sure that's the best route to take, you know? <laughs> So in those cases, you know, sometimes the best we can do is pull together some principles, some principles based on Scripture and maybe even on natural law, you know, and human reason, and say, as we're thinking through this issue, here are some principles that can kind of help us to do that, that we believe are based on the Scriptures. Well, my honorarium is on the line. Uh, my time is really over. I'm not sure how helpful this was in setting the stage for what Paul and Chuck have to say. They can uh, make that decision. But I really, again, I really so much appreciate the topic being raised. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it with you. I hope this was of some small help and interest in getting a better understanding of how the CTCR goes about its work. And sincerely, I hope we can continue this conversation in a way that will be genuinely helpful to the Senate and to the CTCR. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. I've had a lot of fun working with Joel um, over the last nine years on the CTCR until I was uh, term limited out uh, this past spring. Um, to pick up one of the things that Joel did mention, uh, or, or two things, um, the first is, and he can correct me later, in some ways, the way I look at this in terms of how the church does theology is that I'm not always sure that the CTCR is a place where you do, as he mentioned, sort of original creative work. It's really a place that reflects more the consensus of the synod um, because of the way it's composed. It represents uh, people from around synod, and there's a certain sense where things have to kind of bubble up from the ground up where... Uh, brand new things aren't exactly sprung on them, but it sort of expresses more consensus, whereas more groundbreaking work, I think, is done uh, by faculty, seminary, college, uh, by pastors and the like, and then as the consensus grows within Synod, that's what finds expression at the CTCR. Um, also, as a drafter, um, I've drafted three documents now. The parts that you don't like, I had nothing to do with. One is asked to draft. Uh, you work with a committee. There are three committees on the CTCR. You work with a committee. Um, the draft eventually works to the committee. The committee then sends it to plenary, and then the entire plenary, uh, 16 or more people, uh, works through the draft as well. Uh, in and sometimes you do get in uh, extensive debates over the use of scripture, the confessions, and uh, things do get altered along the way. Now, I was gonna, I've been asked to reflect upon uh, how I approached uh, the, the documents that I worked on. Uh, the first was, well, not the first, but I'm going to take it first, the divine call. Um, the specific request from Synod was more or less to <clears throat> ask the commission to address the practices, together with the theological foundations, for the placing of individuals into or removing them from their office or location or service. So sort of the procedures for getting into the office or <coughs> being removed from the office. As a result, the first sentence of the document, 
The New Testament says very little about the exact procedures for placing someone into or removing someone from the office of the public ministry. <laughs> okay, so try to be upfront about that. Nevertheless, some principles may be drawn from information. I didn't add that. That, that, that was added in plenary. <laughs> we can check the minutes on that one. <laughs> um, but the, an earlier one uh, that uh, I had done back to 94 is um, spiritual gifts. Um, this one really involved those spiritual gift inventories. Uh, that were kind of common in the uh, 1980s. And I have to admit, you know, I did approach this with certain assumptions and presuppositions. Usually when they ask a drafter, they assume he's got some uh, interest in the area or perhaps some expertise in the area. And I had also approached as one who had taken a number of these inventories. And, you know, as I took them, I kept saying, boy, you know, I hope I have the gift of leadership, not the gift of service or something like that. Or, uh, and notice that they never asked if you, about the gift of martyrdom or the gift of um, tongues or something like that. So, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Scott. Um, you know, so... so <laughs> so I didn't approach this with no knowledge or without any questions or some... Uh, Bedenkin or concerns uh, about this, uh, the issue of spiritual gifts. Now, that was a topic, though, that you actually involved some very specific passages, because obviously the texts were like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the use of uh, Paul's imagery of the body, the, the words charismata, pneumatica, things along those lines. Uh, so the first half of the document really deals with, you might say, the consensus among exegetes regarding how to interpret those a text, and out of that, I kind of wound up concluding, uh, gee, you know, we got to have a little bit of humility on how we define these. We cannot define them with a great deal of precision. A lot of them were very ad hoc uh, in Paul's writings. Uh, and so to say, well, here's what this gift is, and, def you know, we have to be a little cautious about that. Um, also, uh, you know, realize, too, along the way that there was no method in Scripture for discovering spiritual gifts. Um, I always thought it was interesting that the methods used had a profoundly unspiritual character to them. Uh, I don't mean that in a bad way, but, you know, explore the different possibilities, experiment with them, look for affirmation. Well, that applies to a lot of other things like finding a hobby or a career or uh, something along those lines. So the first half of the document wound up dealing uh, with the, uh, the, uh, the exegesis of it and then the conclusions. But we also recognize that the church wanted a little bit more than that, and so the question is, okay, so what do we do with this? In the second half of the document, I tried to uh, develop a, a theological framework uh, for thinking through these things. Uh, for example, one of the concerns I had was that somehow spiritual gifts are elevated above creaturely gifts. You know, it's one thing to have, you know, a, a creaturely gift of... Um, uh, whether it's music or an interest in reading or, or speaking skills, but it's far better to have uh, a spiritual gift and you end up with that kind of hierarchy. Um, now, I, I will be upfront. I, I'm shaped in large part in terms of my thinking by uh, the regular fidei that uh, uh, um, uh, Tim was uh, talking about. Today. By the way, Tim, are you here? Good diagrams. I'm proud of you, man. Um, uh, you know, so I was trying to, th so I've been shaped by the regular fidei, the creed. Um, maybe it's because of my catechism work, because of the work on the creeds. Thinking creedally in terms of, I suppose, Clover to call it 
uh, uh, thinking in a way that's consistent with the story. For me, the creed kind of provides the overarching story of Scripture from creation, the reclaiming of creation, the new creation. And so that really shaped the way I think. So when I addressed the issue of spiritual gifts, I started thinking about, okay, well, so what's the relationship between what God does in creation and what God does in the, the new creation? What's the relationship between our uh, creaturely gifts and so-called spiritual gifts? Is it a case where we've got these creaturely gifts of um, uh, whether it's speaking or leadership or charisma, and then I become a Christian and I check them at the door and get different gifts entirely that I use in the church and I use these other creaturely gifts in the world? Or is there perhaps some continuity? Is it perhaps a case where these creaturely gifts as I enter the church, the Spirit then uses them in his service, and perhaps is that why we might call them spiritual gifts? And even using the language spiritual gifts, I should be cautious about, because that's not really a, a biblical term. Uh, pneumatica, I think, is spiritual things, or charisma, type gifts of grace. Um, but at any rate, so I, I was trying to use that credo story, if you will, uh, uh, that credo narrative to help think through uh, the relationship between uh, you might say the first article and the third article, creature to gifts, spiritual gifts, and how maybe this, in terms of the third article, we're able to ap- appropriate uh, the this, this spirit leads as a way that some of these creature to gifts blossom, if you will, as I find opportunity to use them in the service of the gospel. All right, well, that brings me to the most recent document. If you have the image up there, we can go ahead and throw that up there. It will come. Together with all creatures. There we go. All right, one word of preface. Uh, any of you, if you've ever gone through a graduate program, uh, worked on an STM thesis or PhD dissertation or DMIN map, one of the hazards of doing that is you w- devote your life a couple years to it, two years or three years, you slowly become convinced that this is the most important topic in the history of the world, and it's going to answer every question that the church and society has. <laughs> well, I feel that way a little bit about this one. Uh, in, in this particular case, the Synod asked us to uh, produce or write a report on what's called the responsible stewardship of uh, the environment or of creation, responsible Christian stewardship. And while my earlier comment was that a lot of times I think the CTCR um, writes reports that expresses the consensus of the Synod on an issue or an interpretation of Scripture, um, this document is a little bit different. This is perhaps where it is a little more on the creative side of things because there wasn't really a controversy within our circles on this topic, as there might have been debate about the use of spiritual gift inventories or about other issues. Uh, this was an issue that was out there in society at large. And in addition, there was really no paper trail within our synod in addressing this topic. Um, we, we didn't have a long paper trail like we do for church and ministry, uh, you know, where you have to, in a sense, go over all the past debates. One of my colleagues put it like this. It's sort of like Civil War reenactments, you know, reenact the uh, debate between uh, Wath and Grabau, Wather and Lands. So didn't have any of that. It could almost start with um, a, a blank slate in some ways, at least in terms of what Synod has said on this topic. There have been a few resolutions down through the years, uh, but nothing overly extensive. Again, as I approach this then, <clears throat> I also had to recognize <clears throat> that what I'm bringing to it was a, 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 a credo approach that really emphasizes the goodness of creation. 
um, the resurrection of the body, uh, the incarnation and the sacraments. Uh, in addition, I recognized readily that I was strongly influenced by Irenaeus, Luther's treatment of the first article in the Catechism, and probably uh, Gustav Wingren, um, his book Creation and Law, where he points out that 20th century theology too often was consumed by the question of epistemology, how do we know stuff, and so it tended to approach things from the third article or the second article. And Wingren makes the point, well, hey, you know, the first article comes first for a reason. <laughs> um, it lays the foundation, shapes the contours uh, of the story that follows. Um, you know, and, and so those are things that I'm, <clears throat> I'm bringing to this topic. I'd always been interested in the first article. Uh, a lot of my work in the past had been related to the first article things that actually sort of, you know, went back to the spiritual gifts document uh, to, to some extent. I also <clears throat> recognized that I'm a, uh, the, the document was primarily for a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod audience that it tends to be not only theologically conservative but politically conservative and that one of the challenges would be to articulate a Christian responsibility uh, avoiding the issue of politics. You know, so that immediately what you know, comes to mind a lot of people is um, Al Gore, global warming, Greenpeace, Earth Firsters, and so forth, you know, uh, although it's somewhat of a generational thing uh, among some of us. Then, uh, approaching the document, I wanted to get my hands on, so what is the theological issue? Because to address the Missouri Synod, you gotta, it's got to be a theological question and a theological answer or, or, or issue. And the more that I worked on this topic, the more I realized that it really was everyone, uh, uh, environmental ethicists and environmental philosophers were saying, in the end, this is a spiritual question or it's a religious question. Namely, how do I see myself and my relationship to the earth on which I live? How do I see myself and my relationship to creation is another way of putting it. Uh, and, and so that shaped it. Now, in terms of the texts that were in question, obviously Genesis 1.28 was a biggie. Uh, it doesn't take too long to go into the literature, especially in the 60s and 70s, to find everyone pulling out Genesis 1.28 as the problem. Um, Genesis 1.28 gives Christians a license to conduct themselves as the earth's worst pest I ran across. Uh, Genesis 1.28 gives us a license to be, uh, uh, makes us weed species on the face of the earth, which I didn't know if it meant we just proliferate rapidly or we ought to be uh, yanked out. Uh, Genesis 1.28 gives us a bulldozer mentality. Uh, you know, so obviously that was going to be a, a key text that one had to deal with. Now, after sort of doing the historical work, though, and I, I turned to the, the, the biblical uh, material, um, I had to take into account not only, <clears throat> you might say, consensus of exegesis on these different texts, but also then how are you going to present it to the readership. And to that end, I, we, we adopted a, um, a, 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 I suppose, a credo approach. I, I thought for, for people to care about creation, they need to see how creation fits within the entire biblical narrative of creation, the reclaiming of creation, and the renewal of creation. And, and so, and, and how do, and these individual texts, I thought, well, we need to at least explore, how do these individual texts fit within that story? And how do they contribute to that story? And what do they um, add to that story, if you will? And, and so the, the heart of the document winds up sort of taking us uh, through the, the biblical narrative, I, I suppose you could say the master narrative, um, 
locating these texts and themes within that narrative. I uh, wound up trying to do it three, way, three times, so we tell the story three times, each from a slightly different angle, to highlight uh, our common creatureliness, our distinctive creatureliness, and then how we bring those together. All of which are summarized in Luther's expression, God made me together with all creatures. The, uh, uh, we normally translate God made me and all creatures, but the German is more accurately translated together with all creatures. Now, sometimes Jeff will ask, well, you already knew where you were going to go with this. Well, yes and no. I mean, I knew that we were going to affirm the goodness of creation, that creation had intrinsic value simply because God had created it, and that God works through creation um, pretty much in everything, but especially for salvation, uh, incarnation, sacraments. Um, and you know, so I, had, I knew a number of those things uh, going in simply because of my assumptions as a, um, or as a result of my commitment <clears throat> to uh, the Lutheran confessions. Having said that, though, I have to admit that in working through these texts, a number of new questions kept arising for which I haven't found entirely complete answers. Uh, you know, for example, when it comes to things like creation, um, well, okay, I, I, a few of the things I discovered that I, perhaps I'd just never seen before is uh, that God... Us, well, he knew he created us from the dust, but then breathed into us and we became nephesh. But then the other creatures were also created from the earth, and they were called nephesh too, uh, living creatures. You know, I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I guess I had never really paid all that close attention to Genesis 9, where God made a covenant not only with uh, Noah and his family, but with every living creature. And then when you move into the uh, prophets, the same thing in terms of how they talk about the new creation in very physical terms. You know, and, and then start putting those pieces together. But then some of the questions that started arising for me out of those texts, which probably still need some more work, is <clears throat> what, was, what was God's purpose for making human beings? I never really thought about that before, because I had always sort of focused on salvation or, you know, second article. What purpose did God make us? You know, the answer is, you know, well, to live with him forever in heaven. Well, we didn't need bodies for that, or we didn't need an earth for that. Uh, could have made us like angels, I suppose. And none of that, and that's not in Genesis 1 and 2 anyway. I mean, the, the reading that I seem to get from Genesis 1 and 2, God made us for the purpose of looking after his earth. Uh, that, that seems to be the way the narrative works, and working with God in taking care of his earth. And then for what purpose did God create animals? Millions of them, teeming in every space. Well, that's kind of an interesting question. When I first thought was, for our use. Well, Adam and Eve didn't need animals for clothing or food prior to the fall. You know, the four person God create animals. And then you find Job talks about God delighting in the wild things uh, of creation. Uh, Job 38 to 40. Or is all this simply a backdrop and kind of a stage for the narrative of salvation? Or does it tell us something important uh, about God, about us uh, being physical creatures? Why did God give us five senses? Um, you know, well, more and more I started thinking it's got to be so that we can uh, interact with the full phenomena of creation, uh, a sense of beauty, sense of wonder, sense of mystery. Um, and, and the Old Testament is amazing. You start seeing things you didn't see before in terms of the, the prominence of those uh, different themes or topics. So in that regard, it started raising as many more and more questions for me 
about things that I had never really asked before because I tend to be a little bit, you know, especially with my work on the confessions, justification by faith, um, you know, consumed a lot of my work and activity and uh, writing. Well, am I out of time? Okay. Uh, oh, that's actually a pretty good place to, to stop. I'll leave you with questions that I still have. I uh, appreciate the Hebrew and Greek going across the screen up there, although they mispointed one of the Hebrew words. Uh, good effort. Reminds me of the time when uh, I was teaching beginning Hebrew and in the second week a student raised his hand and said, I'm having a hard time seeing all those dots. And I said, friend, there are a lot of dots in Hebrew. Um, it's, uh, it's good to be with you here today and good, uh, thank you very much for coming to our symposium. And let me first say... Uh, what a wonderful executive director the CTCR has in Joel Leyenbauer and what a joy that is to work with him. And also with the assistant executive director who's also here with us, Pastor Larry Vogel. Um, so the question is, how does the CTCR use scripture? And in general, I would say that CTCR documents have proven to be very helpful documents for the church. And that generally they've uh, uh, seriously attempted to work with the scriptures in a responsible way, in a way that's informed by exegesis. So I have found that they're not cavalier at all with their use of scripture. They're, they're trying to study these texts in a serious way. Different assignments call for different approaches. Some assignments call for more on church history. Some assignments for more on systematics some on, uh, uh, for more on an exegetical approach. Uh, on the End Times document, one of the issues there is, of course, premillennialism and how do they interpret certain texts. So you have to deal with, well, what, what are you going to do with Revelation 20? Or what are you going to do with Romans 11, all Israel will be saved? Or uh, Daniel or Ezekiel? So in that kind of document, it was conducive toward actually taking a look at these texts and debating various uh, interpretations. Uh, so in general, I think uh, these CTCR documents have been responsible in their, uh, in their use of Scripture. Uh, but I did encounter two attitudes that I wanted to uh, mention here that I think uh, we need to be cautioned about. This isn't so much addressed to the CTCR, it's more addressed to uh, the Missouri Senate in general. Uh, and, and these two attitudes are not simply either liberal or conservative. They don't fall into that uh, reduction. One attitude is uh, what Joel mentioned earlier, and that is the desire to have only short summary statements, bullet points, theses, eight-second sound bites. And so the goal is always to kind of 
can't you just kind of reduce that to a one-liner? And uh, that's very effective in teaching. We're, we're all familiar with Walther's Law Gospel and how effectively he used the uh, uh, approach of giving theses. But uh, I want to encourage the other side as well that sometimes what we need to do is actually take a look at a passage and walk through it line by line, verse by verse, and spend more than a half hour on it. Uh, uh, that in our day of, of always looking for succinct packages, we take the time to actually seriously look at a passage for an extended period of time and that we help our people develop the ability to do that as well. Uh, the, the second uh, attitude I wanted to mention is, is this. Thinking of Scripture as an encyclopedia that covers all topics from A to Z. Um, so it's kind of, what does the Bible say about topic X? Um, what does the Bible say about how men and women should, be relate, should relate to each other in the medical field? How about in the business world? How about in higher education? As if there's some secret little verse tucked away in Ecclesiastes that addresses the medical field. And it's, it's kind of this view that the Bible is an encyclopedia. It'll answer all pragmatic American questions that you have. How big should your parking lot be? How should you organize your congregation? How many committees should you have? It's in the Bible somewhere. And we need to kind of, you know, help people understand, no, uh, the Bible is an ancient library of, of books written 2,000 plus years ago in the Middle East. So it's not going to address all of our modern pragmatic questions. I remember years ago there was this book called The Jethro Principles, where the author took this episode from Exodus 18 where Jethro is giving Moses some advice 3,400 years ago in Egypt and pretending as if these are principles for how you organize your congregation in, in modern America. Well, you know, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think Jethro's going to teach us that. And uh, uh, so what I wanted to push is this point. The goal is not to make these ancient texts answer all of our modern American pragmatic questions. The goal is to get modern Americans interested in the questions that the Bible does ask and that the Bible does address. Uh, so instead of taking ancient apples to speak to modern oranges, we have to get modern people interested in ancient apples. Uh, uh, get help, and this of course is the challenge, to help modern pragmatic Americans get interested in the kinds of specific concerns and questions that these biblical authors were addressing. They were speaking to certain concerns, and we need to pay attention to those concerns. Now, why? Why would those ancient texts still be relevant? And the answer is because human nature hasn't changed all that much. Original sin hasn't changed all that much. God's promises through Christ haven't changed all that much. And so we moderns can study these ancient texts and the 
and, and see that actually they are addressing questions that are very relevant for us and very true to us. But I think that's, that's the concern, not to try to make the ancient Bible speak to modern questions, but to help modern people interested in the specific concerns that the biblical authors were addressing. Um, I very much like the emphasis of, uh, of uh, Joel and Tim uh, that we focus on the overall narrative, the creedal narrative, uh, and that with that creedal narrative we always start with the first article. Uh, those are the, the first thing God did was create. Uh, so that we see the Bible not as a collection of topics, but as part of, uh, but as conveying this overall narrative. Uh, and so here's the challenge I'd like to raise, and I think it's, it's uh, I don't really uh, have the answer to this. I think it's a project well worth working on. And that is to spell out a little more precisely exactly how do you move from these ancient scriptures to modern doctrine. How do you move from the Bible to doctrine? And what kind of moves are you making and how are you doing that move? So, to take a simple illustration. Look at the table of contents of your Bible. What do you see? Here's what I do not see. I do not see this. Book 1, Doctrine of God. Book 2, Doctrine of Original Sin. Book 3, Doctrine of Christ. Book 4, Doctrine of Justification. That's not the table of contents. The table of contents is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and in this last part, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's what the Bible is, a collection of books. Now, we believe that these books teach the Christian faith, and we can state what that Christian faith is in doctrinal terms, but I think a little more work needs to be done on the hermeneutical side. How do you make that move? How do you make that move from these ancient texts to doctrinal statements? Uh, that's what I wanted to throw out there, but uh, uh, again, in general, I think uh, I've been impressed with the CTCR documents, and I feel that they've, they've made a good contribution to the church. Thank you.